Hello, everybody, and welcome into a, a special midweek edition of the Five at the Back Soccer Podcast. Uh, I'm excited to have a, a new guest on, a very special guest. His name is Dan Kilpatrick, and he covers football, soccer for the Evening Standard. And I'm, I'm very excited to have you, Dan. Uh, you cover Spurs, England, you know, various other footballing matters in Europe. I've uh, been reading your stuff for years. I mean, back to ESPN days. And uh, I'm really excited to have you on. So welcome to the pod. Thanks. That's a great introduction. And it's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, it's, it's good to have you. So just to give you some background, obviously, there's usually five of us. So it's why it's called five at the back. So right, okay. it'll be it'll be just you that. and I. It'll be just you and I today, um, considering it'll be kind of a Spurs-centric um, a little bit of a post-mortem approach to, you know, I, I don't want to make it that, but just to explain how we got here. So, um, you know, we talked a little bit pre, pre-show pre about the demographic of who we talk to every week. It's primarily Americans, a lot of Liverpool, United, Arsenal, you know, big six, but uh, it, it's as an American fan, it's it's hard to follow all the clubs deep enough to understand everything. You know, the pod members, we have to kind of be more plugged into the other clubs just to be able to speak about it, but you're average fan doesn't know what the heck's going on at Tottenham and I don't either but I follow it closely enough reading your stuff reading some of the other guys stuff that I feel like I have a general feel for it so I get the question all the time you know a few years ago we were challenging with Leicester and top four regularly and best one of the best squads in the league best young squad in the league what and what happened you have such a good roster such a good team what what's going on there what's Jose doing and I, I think I think it goes back a couple of years Okay, so that, that's a big question, but I, I think I'd probably break it down into two parts. I think on the one hand, there's been pretty chronic mismanagement of the squad that dates back a number of years. I mean, the, the most kind of obvious example of that is the summer of 2018, where Spurs didn't sign anyone at all. And I think really that was the the start of the end for Pochettino, and that was the beginning of when his relationship with the club started to break or, or did break. And actually everything after that was was kind of confused and, and perhaps masked by the Champions League run. I think you know, had Spurs gone out of the Champions League in the group stage that following season, which they were very, very close to doing, uh, actually Pochettino's reign could have come down much quicker or, mm-hmm. or at least at the first part of his reign. So there's been, there's been chronic mismanagement and Mourinho's still suffering the the consequences of that. I mean, if you look at the defence, which has been the biggest problem area for him, right, he just can't fix it at all. The mismanagement there has been particularly bad. And I think I've written it a few times recently, but Reguilon, who's the left-back they signed from Real Madrid in the summer, was the first genuine upgrade to the defence, I think, since Toby Alderweireld, who signed in 2015. Mm-hmm. I think on the same day that Spurs announced some stadium plans. So that shows you how long ago that was. So <laughs> between Alderweireld and, and Reguilon, everyone who was signed was was a downgrade. They weren't improving yeah. the, the defensive unit. Aurier was a downgrade on Carl Walker. Oh, absolutely. Davin, Davinson Sanchez wasn't an upgrade on, on Vertonghen or Alderweireld at the time. Mm. Uh, Matt Doherty wasn't an upgrade on Aurier, believe it no. or not. So mm. the Spurs have just kept going backwards there. So that's the first part, the, the, the squad mismanagement. And that really, to, you can boil that down to the fact that the club just prioritised finishing the stadium and, and paying for the stadium over paying for the squad, which you know many people would, would say you know is understandable, but, but that's the reality. So the squad has just not improved. It's gone backwards since, since the Leicester season, as I normally call it. I mean, the, the second thing is is obviously 
in the dugout, you know, the, the managers. And I think the, the thing not to do is to conflate what's happening now with what happened at the end of Pochettino's reign. Because, yes, a lot of the players are really similar, but the context is completely different. Like, Pochettino went stale after five and a half years. As I said, his relationship with the club kind of broke and then was very hard to fix again. Whereas Mourinho, he's only been there for 15 months and you know, it's, it's not the same thing at all. I think we, we are seeing, you know, we are seeing some of Mourinho's failings as a coach and they're being exacerbated by the problems in the squad that I've already alluded to. So, yeah, it, it's a big question, but I think there's, there's two broad parts of that. And, and one is the mismanagement of the squad and the second one is the, the end of Pochettino's reign and, and you know, Mourinho kind of struggling to get a handle um, when he was picking when he was asked to pick up the pieces yeah that's it's funny you, you mentioned that timeline because that's right where my timeline picked up so it, from a from an outside perspective looking in on Spurs all, all people think about is the Champions League run and where that season ended and it was Pochettino was flying high riding into Madrid against Liverpool when really like you said the crack started to show so so Spurs finished third the season before and Pochettino went on vacation came back so some crypt it really wasn't cryptic he said look we got to be brave in the market take some chances and I don't think he meant sign no one like it's brave uh I don't think that's the bravery that Pochettino intended and from that point on, the season that season played out in a very weird way. Like you mentioned, Spurs almost went out in the group stages, and then really January of nineteen, some of the cracks really started to show. I think when Dembele was sold to Guangzhou, and in the midfield, Sissoko stepped in in this weird like I don't know how he did that for a few months, like looking incredibly competent, filling in for Dembele, but the the form in the league. Uh, was poor that spring. I believe they took 13 points from the final 12 games from February on in that in that time. All while this this season's being buoyed by this fan. Like as a Spurs fan, I'll never forget that spring, the the night in Amsterdam, the the insanity at the end against Manchester City. Even even the final was heartbreaking. But the but the run buoyed a season that the cracks were already showing in the foundation. If you remember the Erickson Erickson was having some contractual issues. Alderweireld was getting ugly contractually at that point. I mean, not downright ugly. Um, he his he had that $25 million release clause or pound, excuse me, release clause that got messy right around that time as well. And and then Vertonghen was set to expire the following season. So some of these stalwarts in the squad, Dembele's gone. Two of your best back four in the league for, for a couple of years are contracts are up. So there's drama, there's players leaving, and the cracks are starting to show right after you didn't sign anybody. So I, I think what you're saying about the squad being mismanaged really started to show it was built well and it started to fall apart right around there. I think, and you, you got to remember, we we're playing at Wembley then too. It was another season in Wembley and it was stresses that we, the, the squad and Pochettino weren't expecting two seasons there. And I think that the pressure really started to build uh, right around there. Um, and, and one thing, I don't want to make it a totally negative because at that time for Spurs fans, it was memorable. And, and you wrote a story actually right around the time Pochettino was sacked about, you know, everybody's doing these postmortems, but we need to think about and remember some of the highs and some of the good times. And the, it's not always about, there was a quote in there that, that I loved about, um, it's not always about the, the end. We, we get caught up in, in where do things end up, but most of the time it's, it's what you do along the way. So during that, that time, I know you, you were with the club quite a bit, that Champions League run, was there what, a moment something that stands out for you 
obviously Amsterdam, right? Like it was had to be. Yeah, it, yeah, it had to be. I mean, I think just to to pick you up on that, like yeah, I think Pochettino, what was all about the journey, particularly kind of looking back, uh, and and now you've you've got that interesting dynamic where you know Mourinho isn't about the journey at all. You know, he that's one of the ways in which he's just the complete opposite of Mourinho, and and he's all about the end destination. So you know, he's all about winning the League Cup, and it doesn't matter that that, that the run there was, you know pretty easy um kind of obviously city aside you know it's frank lampard's chelsea and brentford and stoke and a bye but he's all about winning it and and you know this the same is kind of true of, of of every competition he's in it doesn't really matter how you play it doesn't really matter who you beat on the way it's just all about kind of getting over the line but th- that was felt very different under Pochettino and was obviously epitomized by the champions league final run but yeah to answer your question amsterdam was was just incredible i mean i remember you know, sitting in the press box and literally beer was kind of raining down on us <laughs> for the whole second half because Ajax fans, there was some, there was a pocket of Spurs fans sitting next to the press box who kept celebrating and Ajax fans <laughs> from the rows above were just chucking beer at them um, that was <laughs> oh, hitting us. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I, it was just a bit of a daze really. You know, you're supposed to kind of send a piece on the whistle. It's called an on the whistle piece. Um so as close to pos- as possible to full time as you can. I, I can't remember what I wrote, and I, I kind of would hate to go back and, and look <laughs> at it. But I just remember being really kind of, you know, just stunned by what had happened. And then obviously the, the scenes on the pitch were were amazing, and, and the kind of atmosphere just in in the bowels of the stadium. You know, trying to speak to the the players afterwards, and, and Pochettino's post match press conference and his post match broadcast conferences as well. You know, it was all really really emotional. So that yeah, that definitely stands out. Um, but yeah, I mean. I just wanted to pick up on, on, on one thing you, 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 you're talking about, you know, the, the squad mismanagement and the rebuild. I mean, one of the things now that, that, that um, you know, Pochettino was, was really proved right about was, was kind of, was, you know, making these tough decisions, these painful decisions, he called them. And I think, you know, obviously Spurs had a chance to, to sell Eric Dyer to Man United for 50 million and, and they didn't do it. You know, they had a chance to sell Danny Rose to Man United for 50 million. They had a, probably had a chance or many chances to sell Ericsson a lot sooner for, for a lot more money, you know, much closer to, to Coutinho money, you'd think. And, yep. you know, they, they didn't take any of these opportunities because they, they didn't, you know, they didn't, they, they thought these players were going to keep getting better and, you know, they, they didn't want themselves to be perceived as a, as a selling club. And obviously, with hindsight, those decisions, um, you know, were, were really, really poor ones. And, you know, even Delhi, and, and I think, you know, his, his treatment's another question altogether, but, you know, had Spurs cashed in and, and there were genuinely kind of whispers at the time that Pochettino might, you know, consider that um, in, in 2018, say, you know, certainly that summer he wanted to sell Rose, Alderweireld and, and Dembele. That was public knowledge. But yeah, had Spurs been a bit braver at selling players um, to, to kind of fund this rebuild while while they were spending so much money on the stadium, um, you know, things could have turned out very, very differently. Yeah, that, that's a good point. Something I actually hadn't considered the knock-on effects of the Berbatov saga and the, the you know, drawn-out bail saga and Levy not wanting to be perceived that way did had to have hampered the way he handled things. Because you're right there, there quite a few players that we missed the peak on and I understand not wanting to sell players and not wanting to have that perception but at the same time you know you what you know you where you want to run the club 
So then you, ha you have to execute that on outgoings as well as incomings. And that, that's something I hadn't thought about. That's a really good point. I, um, I, I wanted to go back to another. So post Madrid, post lost to Liverpool, gut wrenching, you know, the handball that wasn't on Sissoko, all of that. And right afterwards, you know, the, of course, fans are disappointed, but in the next couple of weeks, there was a lot of that, you know, you start to convince yourself again, like, all right, well, they've got this, got young players. We, Pochettino's coming back and, and there were some rumors about that, but he was always coming back. Right. And, and fans kind of convinced themselves that, okay, we're this piece, this piece and this piece away, no big deal, but it ended up being kind of an inflection point for the club. You do, you go all in with Pochettino or, or you don't. And, and it didn't feel like they did because he went again, he went on his vacation back to Barcelona, came back and there wasn't a lot of business that was done. Uh, they ended up selling Trippier to Atletico Madrid that summer, and that kind of kickstarted the business. But when he came back, not a lot of deals had been done that summer. I'm just curious, like, what was the atmosphere early in that summer around the club, like, what, with what you had exp exposure to? We went on after the Champions League final. It wasn't that long, really. It was probably six weeks or something, and it was you know, endless questions about the final. Pochettino seemed miserable. He, he seemed, uh, I don't want to say like a broken man because that, that's dramatic, but, you know, it, it seemed like it was still a, a loss that was you know, weighing heavy on the club. And, and that, you know, that's on record now from, from a number of players and from Pochettino himself that it was you know, very, very hard to recover from that defeat. But to repeat what I said earlier, I mean, I think, you know, the, the point where his relationship broke with Spurs or really started to break was the, the summer before that. So when they didn't sign anyone and then the Champions League run, you know, did a, did a great job of, of kind of masking that and was obviously a, a kind of additional blow on top. Um, well, let's put it this way. If, if, if his relationship with the club was, was severely fractured in summer 2018, then it was probably just about broken by losing the final. Um, but actually, you know, I, I, I think the, the business Spurs did that summer was, was actually pretty encouraging. I, I kind of disagree with you in that respect. I mean, they would, as you as you correctly said, they, they just didn't have a midfield after Dembele was sold, but they bought a whole new midfield in, in La Celso and Ndombele, who I think were two you know, really smart signings, two really good signings. Definitely, um, definitely. Yeah, and, and I guess like one of the great sort of counterfactuals is whether Pochettino would have been able to build a, a kind of second era, you know, rebuild the team around and Dombele and Lacelso. He never really had that chance because Lacelso got injured pretty early. Um and Ndombele wasn't wasn't really fit enough and, and came to England, you know, uh and, and picked up loads of niggling injuries as well. So that would have been really interesting just whether he could have lasted longer and gotten fit or whether if they'd have been just fitter when they came, whether he would have been been able to build a new team around them. But yeah, I mean, I think the, the atmosphere was, was was kind of pretty down for for a while, and and probably you are right in saying that they just didn't do enough business. Like they, they needed, they obviously needed to do two summers worth of business in 2019 right. because they'd done nothing the year before, and and that's you know ne next to impossible to do that in one window. So again, it goes back to the previous summer where they hamstrung themselves. Um, and I think, you know, while it was encouraging, it, it just wasn't enough to refresh that squad, which was really in decline. It felt to, from the outside, it felt like the timing 
kind of impacted the uh, the effectiveness of the window. Like there were several several weeks where nothing happened, and then a, a kind of a flurry of activity. I think um, it wasn't late business. It wasn't you know transfer deadline day stuff. But I think Pochettino from the outside again, you you were closer to it than me. It, it seemed like he when he got back to the club from vacation, he wanted to have more activity. And then like there were these little points where things could have turned up, and it it just the the decline may have been slow, um, but it continued where it could have could have been another small inflection point to get a deal done early or, or, or not. And then par- part of my issue with that summer, and it was a, a good summer. I, I love LaCelso and Don is great. I think Sessegnon is going to be an excellent player for Spurs. But if, if you think back to some of what we mentioned on the defensive side, um, and this is what, what kind of highlights the crux of the issue for me. So uh, two years, two years prior, Kyle Walker had been sold to city for a record fee at the time. And he was replaced by Serge Aurier, who essentially it was Kieran Trippier in, in the starting 11. But as far as one in, one out, it was Aurier. And he struggled from the jump. And he's had some good games under Mourinho, but he struggled. And then you didn't really replace Trippier. That, he left that summer and you, and you let Kai Walker-Peters replace him, which you almost understand, I, I suppose. Um, but then you've got Vertonghen, Alderweireld, aging, out of contract coming up. And you had you purchased Sanchez, but like you mentioned earlier, he wasn't the finished article, and he really hadn't grown to the point where you would want him to step up and be a partner to whom? I mean, if Alderweireld and Vertonghen leave, and then on the left side, Danny Rose fell like Icarus, trying to fly too far, too close to the sun, and you had just Ben Davies, who we all know is a good but limited player there too. So there's this, like you mentioned earlier, chronic mismanagement that wasn't addressed while there was good business done. It wasn't best business done at the best spot now you're right midfield was also a problem and you like you said you needed to do two two windows worth of business and they did one one windows worth but they didn't fix one of the biggest issues and that that def- defense i think is really what what started to tear it apart especially letting Trippier go he was the, the one senior defender really besides davies who actually had years on his contract and then he got sold which, which i understand that was a, a not a bad deal for the club so um and, and like you said, with the injuries to the new signings and Sessegnon's a midfield, a, a teenage part-time left back at the time in the championship, uh, it, it wasn't the impact Pochettino needed to turn that around right away. And he had, what, 13 points through 12 games, I think I said earlier. So that that bleeds into the next season. And I think it was 12 points out of 14 or, or something, something like that. It, it was a, a bad run. It was basically relegation form. You're, you were not going to break 40 points if you continued on, if we continued on that form. And I think that's where most fans see the problem starting is that next fall. And that's why I wanted to talk to you about it, because there's so much that led up to that point. Like Pochettino was broken, like the, the relationship was broken, like you said. And that was just kind of the result of, of what had already occurred. So um, I guess, you know, Pochettino gets sacked, Spurs sit 14th, and then not very long after that, Daniel Levy's dream, right? Jose Mourinho's available. Levy needs a manager. He's wanted to do this since, what, 2011, I think. Um, he's always wanted Jose. So uh, what was it like there? So Jose gets, gets appointed. I, everything was a whirlwind at the club, uh, just from the outside. What, what was it like those few days? Well, well I was on holiday in Greece, so I, oh, I can't you? speak for... Yeah, I was. It was, it was very bad timing. So if you remember, it was the international break. So It was, yep. I thought I would... Uh, it was quite strange timing. It was kind of between... Um, it was toward the back end of the international break as well. So it was when the mm-hmm. players were kind of back at the club, obviously, as we all saw from the... The Amazon documentary, but they hadn't 
played for for 10 or 12 days something like that so it was, it was it was really strange timing I was on holiday so I can't speak for kind of the atmosphere at the club but obviously you know in in even in the first kind of month of, of Mourinho's tenure the kind of Hollywood Hollywood uh, Hollywood Hollywood but honeymoon is what I meant to say period um yeah it, it, it was sort of tremendously exciting because you know Mourinho for, for all his Faults and, and critics, I guess, you know, he, he from our point of view, from the media point of view, you know, he remains the master of the soundbite, you know, he remains the master of controlling the narrative, he remains, you know, the, one of the best managers to to listen to, one of the best talkers in the game. So, you know, I think it was exciting. And, and I think, you know, there, there were obviously a lot of Spurs fans who were, were very, very against him, you know, his Chelsea history and, and you know, uh, perceptions about his character. But I think that there was, if not, an overall excitement and then certainly a kind of intrigue, you know, people were very interested to see how he would do at Spurs. Um, so yeah, it, it was, yeah, it was, it was, it was seismic. It was, it was one of the kind of biggest appointments, I think, you know, and the, you could say the, the bravest appointments um, that, that Levy's made. Definitely. It, it's it. Yeah. So that first month there was, it was excitement. There were some good results. Remember the, I think it was West Ham might, might've been the first match. I remember mm-hmm. West Ham. If it wasn't the first one, it was had it a was, nice yeah, lead, it was. and then yeah. a couple of late goals conceded, and everybody, you know, we got a little shaky there as fans, um, and things tur- turned around. Uh, Alderweireld uh, signed a new contract. He was excited, and I think Jose, you know, is puffing out his chest a little bit. The results turned around. I got Toby to stay. Now Christian Eriksen, come on in. Let's get this thing figured out. But I, I don't mm-hmm. think he or Levy expected Eriksen to remain so firm in his stance to leave. So you know, Jan- January rolls around. As we saw, in I, the know, I, th- I think Mourinho is kind of on record saying that um, he knew what Ericsson was going to do from from the first time he met him. Right. So, oh yeah, he he did yeah. mention that. So, so I think he I think he always knew that that was not a player he was going to have right. long term, which, which right. sort of explains the way he the way he used him. Oh, he and he did that. That was a good way that he kind of anywhere he could. He uh, which is interesting. It's a kind of a dichotomy with Pochettino and the way he handled players that were that were on out the door like that, that, you know, Toby barely got a run in at certain times. Um, but uh, what mm. happened in January, that next January uh, with the results for me was interesting because it's kind of that honeymoon phase was over and, and you saw a, a pretty drastic shift in results and the style started to shift with it too. It felt like Jose, he's like, okay, I can score goals, but then I concede goals or I cannot concede goals, but then I can't score goals. And it felt like that squad imbalance, the squad mismanagement that, that you just uh, talked about earlier was starting to rear its head again. Even with Joe's, even with the tactical mastermind that can park a bus like no other, he had to pick and choose. And that is something that I think it's lost in the shuffle of, you know, fans see this manager come in and they see this great young squad, but there's just this critical missing piece uh, in, in defense and at that time also in midfield. Um, and I think that's what it all comes back to for me, that the whole problem and where, where this started and where we're still experiencing the issues is the defensive instability. And then obviously the results really got kind of nasty and then the world stops, right? COVID strikes, the world stops. And this isn't really related to, to the topic at hand, but what was it like for you as far as trying to get reports out of the club? COVID's just starting to get like, what was that all like? Yeah, that was difficult. I mean, it was difficult for everyone, I think, whatever they were doing. 
in the UK or, or around the world. But I mean, from a work perspective, it was, yeah, it was kind of a weird time because there, there just wasn't a lot going on. I think Spurs were one of the last clubs to stop training. So they did keep, they did keep training for a while. Um, but there was obviously kind of no media. There, there weren't press conferences. They weren't putting people up. So, um, you know, it, it really became less about, um, you know, less about covering kind of individual clubs for me. It became more about, you know, basically my job boiled down to, you know, one question and, and variants of that question, which was when will football come back? You know, that's all that everyone was talking about. And that's all the authorities were, were trying to work out kind of when and how they could safely get the game back. And then obviously they did that with Project Restart. But I mean, just like like everything in lockdown, all the days kind of blurred into one. I can't really remember uh, much about it, to be honest. It was just, you know, it, yeah, it was just all about kind of, you know, when's, when's the game coming back? And obviously there were, you know, there, there were there were lots of individual players who, who, who were pretty kind of headlines because they had concerns about certain things. You know, Troy Deeney was one and Golo Kante was one. But apart from Tottenham's kind of numerous and embarrassing lockdown breaches, oh. you know, there, there, were, there wasn't really much of a, a story there, I guess, at Spurs. So, you know, I was I was less a, a sort of Spurs reporter uh, during that time than I normally am. Right. And, and the, I don't want this to sound bad, but the timing was fortuitous for Spurs. Obviously, COVID is not good for anyone. It's terrible. But get the injuries, Kane, Sissoko, Son, yeah, yeah. Bergwijn. I mean, it's... A, it's, a, it's it sounds glib, but Spurs were, were were massive winners from from the lockdown. Uh, again, it's it's an interesting counterfactual kind of you know what would have happened if if we hadn't had COVID, you know, from, from a football point of view, because Spurs were really in drastic freefall mm-hmm. when it was bad the, the, the pandemic hit, and they didn't have any fit forwards, which was the the big kind of mitigating factor. But the, the mood was kind of quickly turning pretty sour and pretty apathetic. And I don't think Mourinho was helping things with his rhetoric, which was kind of very much, oh, I'm, I've, there's nothing I can do, you know, the world's against me kind of thing. Um, so actually, you know, now I think about it, it's, it's a kind of interesting comparison with now. You know, now he's he's in a pretty similar trajectory, but he does have fit players and actually he's getting players back fit. Um, so, you know, he's... His his talk at the time was you know there's nothing I can do, um, but he, but he he got lucky with with the timing of the, the shutdown, um, and now you know I've just done a very defiant press conference with him this afternoon. You know he's saying he can turn it around and he's got to prove that I guess. Well, it's it's been roughly a year time wise. You know end of end of February and that's that's mm, right. Yeah. It was early March I believe, and and he some of the recent press conferences have been pretty the. Uh, the juxtaposition of the two, they've been pretty similar. Um, but like you said, now there's fit players. Now he's had time. He's, he's had some time with them. And, and I want to, you know, fast forward to June, the games start back. The results are a little bit better, right? We draw with United. We get some results and we, we Spurs end up challenging for Champions League for a bit. The Sheffield debacle, you know, kind of, kind of put a pin in all of that. But they, they finish in a European spot. Arsenal win the FA Cup, which of course makes all of us thrilled. Um, and fast forward to the transfer window, it was a good window, right? I mean, you, get, you answer a big question at central midfield with Hoybier on a, on a good deal. Uh, Regulon, like you said, excellent young left back. I was surprised they even addressed the position, let alone with such a good player. Um, Gareth Bale, obviously the, 
you know, hindsight's 2020, the, the, at the time was, was incredible. And he's looked better lately. So there's some promise there and Doherty, you know, he's been poor. He got COVID, but at the time, you know, primarily proven player, we need some help at right back. That's a good signing. And then Joe, Joe Roden was, was a good signing. It wasn't something the club or the fans expected necessarily. Um, but it felt like some good business. Right. And then the screen yard thing, I'm interested. I think that that's a point that, would turn out to be more important than we thought at the time. Nine out of 10 window would have been 10 out of 10 with screen yard, but the screen yard thing, I think ended up being more pivotal than we knew. How, how close was that? Like what, what, what all was going on there? I don't know how close it was, honestly. Um, it was obvious that Mourinho wanted him. It was obvious Mourinho wanted a top center back. And I know that, you know, Spurs have, Spurs have pretty decent links in, in Italy. Um, so I'm, I'm sure, you know, it, it was a conversation that was had. And again, I think there's there's some kind of quotes from the Inter Milan mm-hmm. president or, or something on, on records yep. sort of saying that, that there were bids or there were conversations. So, yeah, I mean, it was, it was on the table and, and it was obviously mooted. But I think, you know, I think price was always prohibitive. I mean, you, you saw in, in Joe Roden, you know, what, what kind of, the budget Spurs had for that position was, which was about 15 odd million. Um, you know, and even then they, you know, they, they met Swansea in the middle because Swansea were pushing for much more. Um, so yeah, screen, I was, was never going to come for that kind of money. You know, oh, it, yeah. it would have, it would have, it would have been you know, three times that. So I think it, it was just financially impossible. And then the same is true of Ruben Diaz, who was, you know, definitely a player that Mourinho loves and loves and loves, but they were never going to pay the, 45 million I want to say that, that, that City Some, somewhere around there so, yep. so yeah so exactly three times Joe Roden um so yeah I mean you but you're absolutely right like it's 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 proven you know uh, bigger than, than than we've known and than, than we could have known sorry and I think um yeah I think as I, as I said and as, as you said like the the, the defence is it's kind of been chronically mismanaged and just got worse. That's not to say that I think these defenders are as bad as they're showing, and that's on Mourinho. Like they're they're, they're not this bad, you know. They're they're not kind of beyond coaching. They're not beyond help. Um, and you know, talking of Roden, he he hasn't really you know had much of a chance. Um, he seems to have kind of been discarded after making that mistake against Liverpool, which. Which is surprising, given the mistakes. Yeah, given the mistakes that that you know Sanchez and Dyer are making every week, almost every week now. Yeah, so. <laughs> and then Jose complains about the individual errors. That it's so like the it's kind of a post mortem on Pochettino, and they were in this this mess with Mourinho. You're right. It it seems like the mistakes are compounding on themselves with what we're doing now. It you know every week individual errors you know it's, it's all, all it, you, you continue to choose the players who are committing the individual errors and and I agree with you actually I think that bringing Ledley King on board well I think if he can have an actual summer time to spend with Sanchez and Dyer and and these guys who haven't had a lot of time and gotten a lot of really good coaching as a central defender I think will help them tremendously and neither one of them feel like true leaders, not, not like emotional leaders, but the, leading the back line, organizing the back line, keeping everyone together. It, it seems like either one of them is good with Alderweireld. Neither one of them is good as the leader. 
And, and I think that the screen yard signing or Diaz, or if, if that's what Jose thought he was going to do, um, it would have been incredibly helpful. Now I feel like it needs to be Alderweireld and someone, or, or we're yeah, going to continue uh, to see yeah. these things. Yeah, I mean, I, I agree with that. I mean, I think it probably Mourinho should pick one of Roden or Tanganga, whoever he thinks is the better player or the more promising player, and, and let Alderweireld kind of coach them through games in, in the same way that kind of Ledley King once did with, with you know, Michael yep. Dawson and Anthony Gardner. And, you know, I, I'm not sure Alderweireld himself is is kind of faultless or as good as he once was. Um, he has been in a kind of gentle decline perhaps mm-hmm. earlier than we would have expected because he's got some serious injuries. But, yeah, I think the, the Darren Sanchez pairing just, just isn't working. So... I- I think it's, it was like a little bit of a false dawn through match week 10, 11, whatever it was. Spurs are top of the league. You know, it's, it's this, again, it's kind of a veneer over a cracked foundation. This cane to sun, blistering pace. You know, eventually Liverpool happens. And then clubs are like, okay, so if we kind of get in Kane's way, he can't get at the sun. And these guys don't know what to do with it. And ever since then, I, I don't want to kind of marginalize the last two months of the season. But since Liverpool, there were some good results in the league. But since then, nothing's felt quite the same. There have been injuries. Aldevaro got hurt a little. Uh, Reguilon obviously was a crucial injury given the lack of Davies' ability to contribute that way. And I think some of that atmosphere, Jose compounds it too, kind of like what you mentioned. Some of his rhetoric doesn't help. And he's like, oh, well, hey, the players, the players are the ones that do it. Um, but then at the same time, the second to none in the world coaching methods thing, it's, it's an interesting um, dichotomy of, of – of, uh, thought process and one question I really had for you because I have an opinion but I want to know what you think because you're closer to it the lack of fans in the stands with with the method the style we've been playing and the lack of I I don't I don't think fans necessarily care about possession but when you have the ball you're not aggressive with it and pressing with it and and trying to move the ball forward what how different do you think it would have been for Jose has he been helped by the lack of fans yeah, it's been a godsend for Jose. He's been really lucky that there's no fans in the stadium. And he might have been forced to change his approach, change his style. Um, or the club might have been forced to be more, you know, consider his position, essentially. Because I think, you know, had there been fans in the stadium after, say, the, the, the Chelsea game, um, you know, there would have been a percentage of them booing at the final whistle that would probably... You know, let's face it, there would probably have been a percentage of them calling for Jose to go, you know, had the had the football been the same, you know, as, as it was on the day with no fans there. So, yeah, I think he I think he's been lucky. But I mean, Mourinho actually said that he thinks the, the opposite is true. He thinks that no fans in the stadium didn't help his players against Chelsea. And, you know, they, they would have pushed for, for an equal um, so obviously, you know that there is there is that argument. I guess that they would have, you know, been better in some home games, and you know, perhaps the fans would have helped. You know, the, the Fulham game, for example, is what you know one of many games where Spurs kind of seemed to sit on a lead and, and didn't do much with it, and then got pegged back by a late equaliser. And you know, would the fans have, have let them let the team kind of get away with that and be so insipid? You know, I'm not sure they would. Um, you know, Tottenham fans. Are, are pretty demanding. They are um, supporters that are used to seeing, you know, if not 
trophies and success they're used to seeing kind of nice attractive football so I think things would have been very different with supporters and you know even even down to, to kind of fairly small details like Mourinho's relationship with certain players like I think it would have been much much harder for him to kind of ignore Deli Alley and Gareth Bale in in certain games with fans in the stadiums fans would have just chanted their name until he till he brought them on mm-hmm. um, yep. so yeah, I, I think, um, again, it, an interesting counterfactual, you know, how would the season be looking now if, if there'd been supporters all, all year? I think it would be, you know, probably fairly different. It's a good point. I actually hadn't considered the thought of, of some of the late struggles in games and how the fans may have kept the players engaged. That's a good point. I didn't think about that. I, I just was looking at the, the flip side. I think there might be some truth to that, but I I think you're right on the macro. I think it's a, a net positive for Jose that he didn't have that that exposure to the fans. Because I think that we in the social media era get so um, engulfed in Twitter and Instagram. We kind of get it's like this echo chamber of opinion. And there's a lot of football fans, soccer fans that aren't on Twitter. Like what percentage of of season ticket holders are on Twitter? I'm not sure, but there's quite a few. And I've seen I've seen some interesting pieces on um on interviewing fans who aren't on Twitter, right? And um, I think that would be, uh, they're lacking their ability to voice that to the club. And you can't ignore 60,000 screaming fans like you can mute 60,000 people on Twitter. Yeah. So yeah. I, um, I'm, I'm curious. So the, the question is, so we, we kind of talked about the squad mismanagement, Pochettino's relationship with the club, Jose's rhetoric, and he, he didn't make it better. So we've kind of walked the the how we got here. Now, now the big question, where we are and where we go, there's obviously conjecture conversations about Mourinho's position at the club and uh, the recent rumors about who the club may target and things like that. I'm curious what your opinion is, because from my, from my perspective, I've always tried to base myself in the reality of what I've seen Levy do. Now, you've seen him sack managers, so that's, that's not a question. But the question for me is if we acknowledge the fact that the squad has been mismanaged to the point where it needs significant investment in the defense, can we sack Jose, pay the 30 million pounds, whatever it is, to, to pay out the contract, and then reasonably expect Levy to spend the money to, to uh, fund the defense? I, I don't think so. What do you think? Well, that's a good question. Yeah, I mean, I, I, t- I take your point. I mean, I think, you know, Le- Le- Levy, you're right, is a, is a chairman who has obviously shown he's willing to sack managers. And I think he's also shown he, he doesn't tend to let things get really, really bad. So, you know, he, he, he does pull the trigger if he thinks things are going south very, very quickly. So I guess that put Jose in a, histori- in a, in a difficult position at the moment. You know, he obviously needs to turn around pretty quickly um I mean my assessment of the situation at the moment is that you know the Reno's quite lucky that the, the League Cup final was pushed back um you know I think if that had already you know if that was now which it was kind of supposed to be I think it was sort of late February yep. mm-hmm. if that was now you know it, it would be pretty hard to imagine Spurs sort of beating Man City on, on current form right um, and if we take the, the recent game as, as, a, as an example oh yeah so you know that that, that could you know that could had that not been moved already be kind of done and dusted. Um, and I think that's one, you know, I think that's certainly a, a reason you, you want to keep Jose in the job because he's got a great record in cup finals and he got the team there and, he, you know, he arguably deserves to crack at it. And I think the Europa League is another big consideration as well. Again, you, you kind of, 
you look at Mourinho's record in that competition, having won it twice. You look at his record in major cup finals. You look at the fact that English clubs generally do very, very well when they take it seriously. And there are all reasons to think that, you know, it's worth kind of sticking with this, um, even if results in the league have been just really, really poor for you know, 12, 13 games now. Um, so, so I think, you know, those, the, the cup competitions are a huge consideration, as well as, you know, what, what you mentioned in, in regards to the the kind of cost of sacking him and whether it would actually make any difference, given that you know there are clear weaknesses in the squad. Um, but look, I think you know to sort of answer your question, what Levy will consider, I suppose, or what he should consider is you know is Mourinho getting the best out of these players, even if they're ultimately not good enough players for where we need to be. And you know, my view, as I've already said, is that. Dyer and, and Sanchez and, and Alderweireld and Doherty, etc. You know, they're, they're not world-class defenders. They're not the defenders that probably are going to get you, you know, even in the top three of this league, but they're better than what they're showing. And so, you know, I think Levy can reasonably expect an improvement, you know, just in, in terms of sort of coaching and, and, and management um, that we're not seeing at the moment. No, I agree. And it's interesting that I see... You know, I interact with a lot of Spurs fans and it's there, there's this uh, rationalization that's starting to happen. They're like, well, let's see if he, if we lose the next few and then he gets sacked before, and then we could still be in the Europa league and we can still win the, like w- what they're willing to lose, what they're willing to drop out of to get rid of Jose. If it means we get this guy, you know, it's, it's a very interesting time to be a Spurs fan. Cause we all, we want to win, right? We, this trophy, the coach checked the trophy cabinet. Nope. We're, I'm so tired of hearing that. And uh, the fact that some fans are willing to just discard the whole thing, like, all right, if it means Jose's gone, five nil in the cup final, it doesn't even matter. It's just, just a very strange time. And, um, you know, I, I agree with a lot of what you said, I, and I appreciate you coming on. I um, I think hopefully for those who are listening, you understand a little bit about the kind of the slow decline of of the squad and the kind of contributed to some other soft relationship factors. Um, and Dan did a really good job of explaining some of those for us. Um, that, that's most, most of what I had. Dan, is there anything that you want to, um, that you wanted to discuss before we go? No, no, that was, that was a good chat through. I think, I think, yeah, we covered a lot of the, yeah, the, the big issues that have led Spurs to this point. So um, Dan uh, is on Twitter. If anybody who's enjoyed this and wants to follow Dan, it's at Dan underscore KP. And you can find his articles over at the Evening Standard. Um, there's tons of good content over there. Uh, some of the old stuff, back to ESPN even. It, it's all it's all excellent. It's all online. Everybody check him out. Uh, give him a follow if you're interested in, in staying up to date with, with what's going on at Spurs. Because one way or another, there's going to be activity over the next several months. And if, if this is anyone's first time listening to the five at the back podcast i am one of only five of five obviously so if, if you don't like me there's four others so you should give us a listen um we, and we do this once a week just pick it pick some games talk about some matches and players and situations and uh, we, we just have fun we don't take ourselves too seriously uh in america the, the podcast on soccer can get a little pretentious and xg this and we talk about stats but you know xg build up and xg chain and the net variance of the blah blah like we, it's just we just talk about what we see and, and, and have fun with it. So if anybody uh, wants to find us, it's at F-I-V-E-A-T-B on Twitter, and we're available on all uh, major podcast platforms. So again, Dan, I appreciate it. I know you're very busy, especially right now. I appreciate you joining us. And uh, everyone, have a good week.